0: We've got a young producer who does a great job, um, Tommy Bashley, but it drives him crazy. Like when we, we've we got a couple of segments that aren't filled on the board when the, the show starts, he's like, oh, what, come on, we got to – we're like, mate, don't worry about it. And, and sometimes <laughs> it, the, the red light will go on and then, one, you know, we've got to come up with something and someone will just say something and then away we go, yeah. you know. So it's just um, – and that's what we love about it. I honestly genuinely uh, feel very lucky that I – Go to work each day and I can't wait to get in that's, there because we just amazing. have such a great time. Yeah. Yep.
1: Good. Welcome to another episode of Going Pro and what a pleasure it is having Australian cricket legend on our podcast. So 46 tests for Australia, 32 one-day internationals, 232 first-class professional matches. Currently, have the highest rating radio show and host the Drive Home Rush Hour Triple M show with Bernie and Jars, big time family man, and one would say you've done many things at the highest level. So to kick things off today, I know you love your golf. <laughs> would you have done it all differently if it would have if it could have meant that you would have got a green jacket at at oh, Augusta?
0: Jesus, <laughs> the tough question right off the bat. Um, firstly, thanks for having me. Uh, probably not. Probably not. I love my cricket at the time, um, and still do. Probably don't love the game as much as I did when I played it. Um, having said that, I've still got a big involvement in the game through my work, but would I have changed anything? No, no way. Um, as I said, I, I sort of grew up playing multiple sports and I was okay at most of them. Um, but I think cricket found me more than anything. It wasn't sort of anyone's um, real push that, you know, I should go down that track. I think, as I said, I think cricket found me. And and I only really got stuck into golf post-cricket. So I don't know whether I would have been any good anyway. So who knows?
1: When you say, when you say cricket found you, what do you mean by that? Was there a certain age or just pathway that kind of naturally emerged for you pretty early on?
0: Yeah, pretty much. Um, look, I grew up in the Barossa Valley. I, I was firstly born in Adelaide, but then had a stint, lived for about four or five years in the Barossa, and it was a real sort of—I mean, we lived in the town of Angaston, but it was a real country sort of feel to growing up. Like lots of my friends at primary school had farms, and um, and then the Angaston Oval was like a second home to our family. You know, Mum played tennis and netball. Same with my sister. My dad was very um, sport focused, so he was at the he'd finished his career, but he was still, you know, wanting to play cricket and, and umpire footy and coach and all that sort of stuff. And and I just um, grew up around sport, so you know whether it was basketball, little athletics, tennis, cricket, football, golf, I just did it all. Um, and then probably wasn't until uh, I sort of got towards the end of schooling, it was probably became more about cricket and football. And then I just found myself loving cricket more than footy, really. And that's not to say that I would have made it as a footballer, because I would have had to have done a lot of stuff um, physically to make it in football. But I was probably naturally better at cricket and um, ended up sort of going through the pathway here in South Australia with the state teams. and really just went all the way through the system until I played for Australia. So that's pretty much how it worked out.
1: What was that like? Was it in the early 90s where that started unfolding? What was the pathway like to get towards that, I guess, like state level, Redbacks level? Um, What was the training like? What was the culture around cricket in that time growing up?
0: Yeah, so I finished school in 1988. um, Before I finished I was sort of in the, so I went, you know, under 15s, under 17s, under 19 state teams with South Australia. And then I think the real turning curve for me was in my last year of the state under 19 carnival. I made the Australian under 19 team and ended up touring. It was a a fluke because we toured England. Um, You know, other times, you know, you go to different countries, but my goal was always to play cricket in England. And for, and I sort of grew up watching the Ashes. So then, you know, to have our own little mini Ashes Australian under 19 team play England in England was just brilliant. And um, went through that team with some players that went on to play for Australia, like Damian Martin, Michael Kastovich, and Adam Gilchrist. So getting exposed to players that were really good at that age was great for me. And that was a huge learning curve. And then, um, Yeah, so the state underage teams into the Australian under-19 team came back, did really well on that tour, Mm -hmm. came back and I thought, I'm actually probably good enough to give cricket a real crack. And then after I got back from that tour, I think I got 100 in the first grade game here and got selected for South Australia. So it came a little bit quicker than I thought. Um, And then that was the start of my professional journey. Wow. Did you know
1: that you were like coming hard and actually really getting towards that level going into that trip or were you just kind of like going through the motions? When did you start to realise, hang on a minute, like that's actually – this is actually a career pathway for me. And then the second question to that is when you were over there, how did you actually do well? Were you feeling the pressure like, oh, my God, I got this opportunity, I really need a strike here or how did you actually still – lock into that experience and then do well
0: yeah it's interesting talking to guys like you have made me sort of realize um you know from a young age what was i thinking and i was never really that ambitious like i just love sport you know like as i said i played all sports and if i wasn't playing sport um i was on my bike or i was doing you know trying to catch yabbies in the creek i was just you know trying to do stuff all the time and it probably wasn't until that tour where I thought and I was around these kids that had been great juniors for two or three years and then being around them and and comparing my game to them and taking my game to another level is when I probably when the penny dropped that you know okay I can be as good as these guys and then and that was a bit of belief as well Um, probably coming from South Australia and playing against sides like Queensland juniors were always they'd always bully us like they were like they'd eaten Five chooks each week. You know, they they were just full of protein. Those guys and they were bigger than us, and and then New South Wales and Victoria because of the population, they were always better than us. So we'd go to these state carnivals and sort of get beat up a little bit. And and I was always like, oh well, you know, I'm okay, but I'm not. I'm never going to be as good as these guys. But it was probably that tour, just being around them. Um, and then in terms of pressure, um, I just set myself at that tour to you know, one, to be part of a team and try and beat England, but also um, just try and be as good as these guys. And then once I had a bit of – I think it's like any sport. You have a little bit of success early on. And early on in that tour, I did okay. And then I got, you know, just grew some self-belief. And um, I think in the end, I scored more runs than anyone else on that tour. And from then on um, – and that, and Damien Martin, who was just an unbelievable player. Uh, and – yeah, from then I thought, right, I'm, I'm as good as these guys and I'm going to try and, you know, keep on that trajectory.
1: Uh, it can be kind of hard achieving success early on. Like I look at um, Emma Raducanu, for example, like at such a young age, won US Open and now she's really struggling and finding her way through injuries and battling the pressure when she has been on tour and she's basically lost her ranking and everyone's forgotten about her and just the blink of an eye from that success, how did you actually then manage that to go, well, how do I keep this going and then keep my spot and just keep things moving so I can actually have like a spot in the Australian team?
0: Well, that was just the start for me, really. I mean, that, you know, um, doing well on the Australian under-19 tour was like a little stepping stone to the next thing that I wanted to achieve, which was to get into the South Australian men's cricket team. Um, so I came back from that tour and that happened a lot quicker than I thought as well and then um, yeah again daunting playing with some of my heroes in the South Australian cricket team but um, again you know I just found a way that I did reasonably well when I first started Um, and then the Australian cricket team came along quicker than I thought as well so getting into the Australian cricket team at the age of 23 I think was still quite young. Ricky Ponting was younger than me but um, I still... You know, back then, I think probably the average age would have been maybe 25, 26. And I don't know, I just sort of got to a stage where I thought I just didn't want to put a cap on it. You know, I just wanted to keep sort of getting better. And that became sort of my mantra. Why not? Why not? Why not? Yeah, why yeah. not me? Yeah. Um, because I'd never really thought that until probably a later sort of age. Mm-hmm. Um, and then through training and that, I just wanted to get better every day. You know, I'd go to bed at night going, right, What? how am I going to, what, what's my focus tomorrow? So mm-hmm. it, that's, pretty much how it turned out yeah it's interesting the upbringing you had I reckon maybe made it easier for you
1: because you didn't put so much pressure you did all these other things and you weren't even thinking about trying to make a career out of it you're just enjoying it and then it got to a point where it's like all right let's now take this next level you had so much energy to put into it because you hadn't gone through that whole full-on journey like maybe some of these other players had been to get to the point where they were at right there
0: yeah 100 percent um I didn't put any pressure on myself I mean even making the under 15 under 17 under 19 teams it just happened like I wasn't you know um at a certain age where I was going right I've got to get into these teams and it just you know just evolved um and then so you're right like when I got into those sides that was just the start for me it wasn't the you know I think sometimes especially at junior level um their goal is to get into the uh, the state under 19 team and then once they do that that's that's it and they haven't that's they've reached their goal before they've even gone away and played in the carnival. They've you know, they they've done it. That was their goal. So yeah, that's that's sort of how it worked out for me. Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting. Today's podcast sponsor is
1: Electric Road Agency who were formerly for RT now. If you want a team of strategists, designers, producers, creators who drive stories to tell your advertising and marketing needs, these guys are the best in the business. They've been extremely influential for us at ATA. They've driven our media game forward to new levels that we never knew that were possible. And they've done it with countless brands, big, small, it doesn't matter what the size, they just love telling your story. So they specialize in health, wellness, fitness, tourism, construction, and they are just the best in the business in creating adaptive solutions to find how to tell your brand or how to discover your brand and tell that story. So highly, highly, highly recommend these guys. And if you want to get in touch, please go on Electric Road. Dot au or search the Instagram handle Electric Road Agency and they'll answer your email, your call, your DM and they'll be in touch and they'll be able to tell your story very well. In that point, were you always a batter? Were you bowling as well? Were you trying to figure out where your spot was, your best preferred spot?
0: Well, I, I was always a batter, um, but I love my bowling as well and um, Dad, having played the game... Um, sort of realised that there was a lot of back injuries in fast bowling or trying to bowl fast. Um, and so he held me back a fair bit. So through my schooling years, I bowled off spin and it used to frustrate the shit out of me because I had this mentality of, you know, I was a if I'm a fairly confrontational sort of guy. Like if someone gets in my face, you know, I've got to go back. So for an off spinner to you know, throw, bowl one down and hit me over my head. All I want to do was run in and bowl a bouncer, you know, and, and sledge him. So um, it, was, it wasn't it was until probably towards the end of school where um, I started sort of bowling a bit of medium pace in the nets again and trying to get my skills back up. Um, and then once I got a bit more strength and realised that, I mean, I ended up having a few stress fractures later on, but um, yeah, I was sort of always more of a, of a batter, but because of, I think, as I said I've played a lot of other sports I just wanted to be involved in the game all the time so I wanted to be a good fielder and I wanted to bowl as well and chip him for the team in that way Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: what started to happen when you played for Australia how were those early experiences um, your first few tests do you recall what it was like what was it like putting on the the baggy green and and playing for Australia
0: yeah very daunting again I mean um, I mean i I did well in my first test match, um, and I remember everyone saying, oh, you look so calm, And but I can tell you it was the complete opposite. You know, I was absolutely crapping myself. I think like a lot of people doing something out of their comfort zone for the first time, there's obviously a lot of anxiety and nerves around that. So um, the best thing, Luke, about that first game was that I'd never been in better form. Like I was just in great touch. So... I had full confidence in the fact that if I could sort of handle the nerves and as they say in cricket you get through the first sort of 10 deliveries 20 deliveries and then start to feel yourself then I thought I'd be okay and that's exactly what happened sort of you know I got through got a few runs on the board and then all of a sudden I know you know playing for Australia was huge but I was just playing another game of cricket and I think one thing I was good at was um actually putting everything out of my mind you know crowd television pressure for me it really just came down to I'm the batter he's the bowler and that's all I was doing I was you know my job was to score runs and and it was a one-on-one comp- contest between me and the bowler and and that's how it turned out
1: yeah I think in tennis and cricket that well cricket and in the in batting format that is crucial is that is that maybe times when you haven't been in form, where you've maybe lost touch with that, or what would you put down maybe periods where you weren't in form? Like, I look at an example with David Warner, where like he he's gone through periods where he just struggled and getting out under ten all the time, ducks. It's like, what 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 are the mind games and what happens in the mind in terms of in terms of cricket and batting?
0: Yeah, no, I went through a lot of lows as well. Like, so I was out of form. Um, I think the main thing you think about, I reckon, is the neck before the next time you play or the, your next innings. You, you probably start thinking about the outcome before it obviously happens. So you, you start thinking, well, what if I don't get fifty or don't get a hundred? What if I'm, what if I make another low score? You're, you're like, what are the what are the outcomes of that? And I think that's where all the negativity comes from because you know how, how's your life going to change? How you're going to get back into the team and. Um, that was my main thing. And I think if I look back in my career now, um, we, we had sports psychologists around, but um, I don't reckon we had good ones, to be honest. Um, and I look at the the resources that the players have got now and I'm just so jealous, you know, not so much about the training and that, but the, the mental side of the game mm-hmm. is huge. So, yeah, by the the times that I was out, out of form, I, I sort of probably went away from just watching the ball and, and you know, reacting, but, you know, walking out to bat, having those negative feelings about, oh, what if I fail? Um, and that was obviously the worst thing that you can do really. Yeah. Knowing what you know now, how would you go about it and look at it from a maybe
1: different perspective or, or go from a different mental approach to actually perform better?
0: Yeah, well, I think um, the more you're exposed to um, the mental side of the game, I think you – you can come up with better techniques in, in managing pressure. And that's not nerves. It's more the the anxiety around, um, those thoughts that I just expressed. So, um, I think I would have come up with better techniques in dealing with that. Also, I probably learned as my career went on, um, I, the worse I was playing, the more I wanted to train, the more balls I wanted to hit where, whereas I realized I was actually better off like having a, having a break and not that's, doesn't mean going away because you can't often go away for a week and just totally refresh but you can certainly have a session off here and there and I was the other way like I was just like I just grinded it out and I just wanted to try and get those feelings back so I'm sure that's the same in in tennis but um I would have tried to work out better ways that i could really freshen up mentally
1: yeah i think that's a big one just being able to decompress like after matches relax find that zone where you can just chill out um get your your nervous system and just body feeling like it's in a more relaxed state rather than going to that like nah i'm gonna grind i'm gonna really smash this out i need to get back in the nets which there is value in that but i think at a certain level at your level particular then it's like you know you're good. You know you have the skills. It's why do I need to get back in the net to do all this extra work? I maybe just need to yeah. bring it back a bit and and relax. Did you have anyone to kind of tell you that or any mentors or people around you to kind of help you and guide
0: you in that way? Not really. Like I, I did have people that I did trust, but um, that was only my own fault really. Like I um, – I mean a couple of my best mates always tell me how, you know, pig-headed I was and, you know – whenever I used to get advice I used to sort of find it um or take it as a bit of an insult um so that was just part of my mentality and um but I do regret not having you know one person that I could always go to and just be open and honest about how I was feeling um whether that was mentally or how my game was at the time um so no I I really just tried to to work it out myself along the way and um yeah, I feel like I could have played better cricket if I had, you know, as I said, like the better ways I could have sort of dealt with things mentally, but also having maybe one constant in my life, whether it was a coach or just a, a mate outside of the game that I could have been a bit more open and honest with.
1: Sure. I mean, we can always look back and go like, should have, could have, would have. Yeah. But do you look back on your career anyway and go like, wow, like I could have done more or do you, do you think about it? Do you feel really content looking back? On, on your cricket days playing for Australia, happy with where 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 it was and
0: all of that? Not really. No. I feel like I could have played a lot more test matches. I really do. And and played better because I know my best was uh, good enough as firstly as an international cricketer, but um, you know, looking at some of the players that I played with, I knew that when I was playing well I was just as good as them and and they turned into great to the Australian cricket team. So um yeah I think my main thing was more um the mental side of the game like I I, as I said I I touched on it with the I did have a lot of anxiety around failure and I think that sort of hurt my career because I knew you know after a while our, our team was so good that they were you know the media and um other people were sort of always looking at any little weak links in the team so you knew that if you failed two or three times in a row, they were coming for you. So um, in the end, that sort of probably got to me a little bit. Yeah. Blessing
1: and a curse because if, having so many good people around you drives your standard up, but then also makes it so much more competitive and hard to keep your spot. Yeah, it would have been would have been brutal at the time. Do you think like looking – well, I appreciate, first of all, you saying that you actually are not happy with what well, you could have done so much better and I, and I appreciate the honesty – Does that drive you with what you do now, looking back to have a bit more like, well, I still have something left and I really want to keep improving in whatever you're doing now and and your career path now?
0: Um, I think I've always been one of those people, whether it's – yeah, I just – each day or whether it's in the media, I just want to – I always reflect on a show or a particular um, segment I did or a day's work that I did. So I always reflect and go, you know, that could have been better or – no, I'm reasonably happy with that, but look ahead to tomorrow and think, right, okay, I'm going to do that better. So um, I'm not saying that I want to be, I mean, I want to be the best commentator that I possibly can be, but I don't need people to tell me that. Like I don't want to be, you know, I don't have to be the next Richie Benno or whatever. I'm pretty content in myself. Um, But I'm also now at a point in my life where I'm 52 at the end of the year and I really just want to have a good life balance. Um, I've got three kids: a daughter who's 22 living in Sydney, and, and three, uh, two boys, seven and eight. So my my main priority is my family now. So it's it's being able to probably be a little bit less selfish because you know a professional sports person's a lot of the time's got to be very selfish in terms of you know day to day activities. Whereas for me now, it's more about sort of. You know, making sure my family's happy. That's the most important thing. Yeah,
1: Yeah, spot on. And we're definitely going to go and talk more about that. I I do appreciate as well you talking about um, just your honest reflection each day to try to do things better, not because you want to be known or people to see you in that way. It's more just for yourself. And I think a lot of people can take heaps away from that. Because I feel like that's how long term you actually keep building towards something is every day just keep reflecting what was good, what could I have done better? How did I handle that conversation with someone? Did I leave that in the right place? Because I think that's how you can actually get into a lot of trouble if you don't honestly have a look at how you're interacting in your day and how you could be better in some ways.
0: Yeah and also I think um, a lot of people are very critical of themselves so there's no doubt that at different stages through everyone's day that um you know you, you can reflect back and think oh I could have done that better or as you said like a, even if it's just a conversation that you've had with someone um but I think it's important too to give yourself a pat on the back every now and then too you know um being able to I mean with the work environment I've got now at Triple M is just unbelievable like we're we're best of mates and um we're able to sort of reflect that in our conversations as well like we can say oh that's geez, that that was shit house or we nailed that, you know. So I think if anything, I think a lot of people are probably overcritical of themselves whereas um, sometimes I think you've got to, in your reflection, you can give yourself a bit of a pat on the back every now and then. Yeah, for sure. Going back to
1: playing for Australia, I mean you played with some absolute legends. I mean Steve Waugh, Shane Warne, Ricky Ponting you spoke about before. What was it like and what, what stood out and, and do you have any stories hanging around, hanging around with these guys and what do you really remember being around some of these absolute greats that are still the greatest to this day?
0: Yeah, well, throw Glenn McGrath in there, Jason Gillespie, um, you mentioned the Wars, Mark Taylor, Michael Slater, they're all – David Boone, you know, they're all great players. Um, I think the, the thing I take out of – Most of that is, um, and I reflect on people that are sort of making out or trying to make a career in sport, is to keep trying to tell them that the great players that I played with, they all failed as well, a lot of times. You know, they weren't always brilliant day to day, um, but more often than not, they were. But there were times in games where, um, you know, the games were on the line. And they'd always want they'd always want the ball, or they would always want to hit the winning runs. Darren Lehman's a classic example of that as well. They always wanted to be the person in the team that got their team over the line, and they didn't put the failures um, down to um, not wanting to put themselves in those situations again. And I talk to a lot of golfers that are trying to make it as well, and and sometimes I reckon I get the feeling that they don't necessarily like being in the heat of the battle when the tournament's there to be won or or if they've had a bad experience with trying to win a tournament that it's reflected on them badly. Um, whereas, you know, guys like Glenn McGrath and, and Shane Warne, you know, they they didn't always win the game for us, but that didn't stop them always wanting to be in the main people and wanting to win the game in the future. So yeah, try and get, let don't let the disappointment affect you too much and always want to be, under pressure because that's ultimately if you're going to be a professional sport sports person then you know you're gonna to have to deal with pressure at certain stages yeah
1: spot on i mean it speaks to steph curry who you've used the example before but like if he misses three shots in a row yep. he wants the ball and yep. if he misses again he wants the ball he's like yep. the next one's most definitely going in and, and, the, it,
0: and the thing i love sorry to cut no. you off is you know the, the great tennis players and i don't know anywhere near as much about tennis as you guys but I felt like the difference between the greats is when the, the games on the line they tended to go harder and they weren't worried about making the mistakes whereas the the more average players probably played more within themselves on those key moments and just tried to stay in the points whereas the better players tried to try to take their their game to another level when they needed to
1: yeah hundred percent I mean, if you've got a team that you had and everybody does that, it's you guys would have been so hard to beat just from that alone. You take the skills away from it, but just like that alone, when there is the challenge and everyone embraces the challenge and embraces that opportunity to actually, no, nah, I want to win the game here. No, nah, yeah. I want to hit the winning runs and everyone's on board in that way. It uh, would have created a really mm. like electrifying environment to be part of that you would have just had so much growth to be, yeah, to be involved with.
0: Yeah. And I look at, you know, those tennis players I was talking about, Federer, Djokovic, Nadal, you know, they, were, they weren't they were waiting for the other, the opponent to, to make a mistake. Same with Tiger Woods watching him play golf. Like he was trying to win the tournament himself. He wasn't waiting for someone else to make a mistake. So they're the main differences for me.
1: What do you put that down to? In a practical way, what what um, gives these guys people you played with tennis sort of spoke about the greats and Tiger Woods? Where is this coming from, and what what do they have, or how do they get into that zone that makes them feel like nah, this is mine and I'm taking this opportunity?
0: I don't think that the fear of the outcome. I think they just they're not worried about that. Like they've got so much belief in their game that they just feel like they're going to taken upon themselves to actually get it done. Um, And they're not worried about, oh, if I miss a shot, that it's going to cost me. Uh, I just don't think they've got that in their head. They're not worried about losing the game. And if they do, well, they do. And then they're just going to move on very quickly.
1: Yeah, 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 definitely being very quick to move on. Do you have any memories or really key moments that stand out for you in certain tests or certain one day internationals or with with the guys that you played with
0: oh I just remember the some of the tours we I mean there's some great moments along the way but um I mean my first tour was Ricky Ponting's first tour as well it was in 95 so I would played a couple of test matches here in Australia to finish off the summer and then we we had a quick tour of New Zealand to play some one-day cricket and then we went to the West Indies and we beat the West Indies in the West Indies for the – I think it was the first time they'd lost a series for 20 years or something like that in their home country. And that was the real sort of turning point. Um, they were always the number one team and then that was the beginning of a good era for – or a great era for Australian cricket. So that was a standout sort of moment for me and um, – and then the the '97 Ashes tour because I'd I'd sort of been to England as a younger uh, I, was, I think I was 17 18 something like that and I'd gone over to play some league cricket and I went to one of the Ashes test matches and I just remember being at the ground and the atmosphere and Damien Martin was in that team who I'd played under 19s with and um, so you know I must have been a bit older, I must have been about 20 and um, I just that was another light bulb moment for me it was just like that's when I started to have real ambition. You know, as I spoke about earlier how I'd sort of said, "Well, if I play for Australia, I'll play for Australia." But I remember watching those boys at it, and I thought, "I've got to get myself back here to a to an Ashes tour." So I was lucky to be able to achieve that in '97. And um, but I think the, the great moments were just some of the great victories and, and playing with the, the great champions. We've mentioned a few of their names, and and I think the uh, the celebrations, whether we won, lost, or drew, we Knew we'd given it all for those five days and uh we made sure that we'd sort of enjoy each other's company for you know day five and um and certainly if we won we, we celebrated pretty hard so they're some of the great memories
1: mm-hmm. you made a double hundred what was that like that was it over a couple of days i'm guessing um yeah
0: over yeah day and a bit i think um yeah that was so I batted all day with Steve War, and that was – so that was one of the highlights as well was um, being able to be in a, a big partnership with Steve. And um, I think one of the, the things that I was okay at as well was I think it, it got drilled into me quite young that if I ever made 100, um, the easiest runs you were going to make were after you'd reached 100. So, I mean, cricket is so um, – you know, with statistical moments in games, you know, to get a hundred is quite special. So a lot of people, you know, put themselves under a lot of pressure to get a hundred. And then they, once they, they get a hundred, they, they think that's enough. They've done it. Whereas I sort of enjoyed batting for long periods of time. So, um, yeah, we just had one of those moments in South Africa where, um, it was the first test match of the series. And the, the first test is always the most important to sort of, you know, establish yourself into the series. And they were a good team, South Africa. So, while we are going well and we had them where we wanted to we just wanted to grind them into the ground so i I remember a lot of conversations with steve along the way where he probably thought i might have been losing a little bit of focus you go come on now we've got these guys by the balls let's just keep going so it was just a just a great day's cricket
1: yeah that's interesting i didn't think about it like that the partnership involved when you're in a bit of a group with your batting like how do you stay in the zone and you feed off your partner and then also maybe get like a uh, tactical in a way where you start batting
0: in a certain way based on how they're setting up the field and how someone's bowling at you? Yeah, it depends on who you're playing with. And that's where, you know, getting to know each of your teammates really well, you work out what they need at the time. Um, a lot of time in between overs, I actually didn't like to talk too many tactics. I'd be sort of um, having a ch- just a general chat to try and sort of either calm me down or calm my – other mate down the other end so um, <clears throat> but there's other times during the game where you know, you know you're know you going through a really crucial period so you might be making little goals right mate I'll see you in six balls time you know especially if you're sort of going through a bit of a survival patch in the game um, so yeah there's there's ebbs and flows I mean the, the game goes for so long that you're always going to have little moments in the game where things are going well and at other times you've got to find ways that you got to get yourself through little little spurts so It's probably good in cricket. You've got someone to talk to at the end of each six deliveries that you can sort of reassess things.
1: Yeah, that's really, yeah, that's super interesting. Because I think there's parallels to tennis matches, because especially in the longer tennis matches that you play, where there is momentum shifts and gear changes, where you might really push for a certain part of the game and then you might be kind of like just really holding serve and then just someone else is serving well and it's hard to break and then maybe at like four rule you really make a push and then you can get a set six four and then someone else raises their level and you have to go with them um what sort of zone do you were you liking what what sort of zone did you like to be in as a batter and how did you actually maintain focus uh what helped you stay in that zone so you actually could be performing at that at that length that you're batting for
0: yeah i think as a Batter, um, you know when you're in a you're, you know you're in a good zone, and I reckon that's the difference between a, an average player and a great player as well. Like they're able to get themselves to a zone a little bit quicker than other players. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so it's, it's a it's a combination of um, you know trying to get yourself through that start of an innings and then managing your, your nerves. I don't care who you are, whether it's Brian Lara, um, Ricky Ponting, whoever. Everyone's nervous when they first walk out. That's when you're most vulnerable. Um, but once you get through that little stage, it's then about your opposition, your field place, placements, um, and then getting yourself into the natural flow of the game. Um, and then I think a bit like a tennis player, you've got to, there's not many innings where it goes 100% according to plan. There's always going to be little situations um, throughout that innings where you, you might have to throttle it back there might be times to attack. There might be times to take more of a risk to try and alleviate some of the issues you're having at the time. So you're always having these little, you're just trying to sum it up as you go along. But I reckon the best times, um, I reckon you're batting or the the moments that I had was when I used to walk off and you you sort of, it was just all reactionary. It was just all flowing. Um, And that doesn't happen that many times, but it's just, you don't, you're not thinking about technique you just the ball's bowled to you and you, and you react and and the training that you've done uh, reflects in that and it just the game flows for you it's just a beautiful natural flow yeah when you're in that instinctual zone and i'm sure tennis players are yeah. exactly the same
1: no i have a handful of matches that i can recollect where i walk off and almost i'm disorientated because yeah. i was in a different i was in like a trance zone yeah.
0: um and there's yeah. also in cricket where. The great slippers often can't remember catching the ball, which is weird, you know, but um, all of a sudden they've got the ball in their hand and, and because they've caught so much at practice, it's just become so natural that the Knicks um taken and then the, the ball comes and they take it naturally, but they can't necessarily remember catching the ball because it's, I mean, one, it happens so quickly, but um, yeah, they're just sort of in a zone. Mm.
1: Did you have like a routine in terms of like the bowl that was coming in? Did you do something with your eyes? Was there like a routine on how you got yourself focused to then be ready for that ball that's coming at you, what, at like 150 k's an hour sometimes um, or like a really good spinner? How did you actually mentally get yourself focused for each delivery that you
0: faced? Yeah, so I liked sort of um, – so as soon as I faced the delivery, I'd sort of instantly reflect on – how I played it, what it did off the pitch, how quick it was, how much spin there was, whatever it was, or, you know, could I have played it a little bit better? Once I'd reflected on that, I'd sort of switch off again, have a look around the crowd, the field, or sort of not worry about, you know, what was gonna come next. But my big thing is that I always wanted to be ready before the the bowler was turning around to, to bowl. I never wanted to be rushed, so I always wanted to control my own rhythm. So apart from that, um, you know, I'd sort of go into my my stance the same way, Um, just sort of try and keep a bit of a a rhythm going with the way you know I went about things. But the main thing for me was like, yeah, trying to control the rhythm of the natural rhythm in between deliveries and trying to mentally switch on and off.
1: Mm, That's really interesting. Is that something that's taught? Like, does everyone have, like, their own routine? Because in tennis is like, serve routines, return routines, and how you actually return serve um, and the same routine that you go into with your serve, for example.
0: Yeah, it's taught in cricket, yep. Um, often we say that routines, you know, very important just to sort of being able to sort of, you know, control what how you feel comfortable about the way you go about things. Same with preparation, I reckon. Like, a lot of people – well, a lot of players want to get into a certain sort of routine about how they prepare, um, whether it's, you know, dietary or the way they train. So I I sort of consider that routine as well. But some, some players are probably less routine orientated, and that might just be something to do with their personality. But for me, um, yeah, I just sort of like to, you know, take my guard, go down at a certain period of time, and then um, – just concentrate on sort of watching the cues of the bowler as they're coming in. And then as soon as they sort of load up, I was just sort of trying to watch that ball as closely as possible.
1: Mm. Yeah, super interesting. From there though, did you already have a bit of a plan moving out of cricket? Because I know it's actually really tough to for a professional athlete sometimes to actually know what's next and they they do really well in their career but they don't really have a pathway or give much thought into what's next and then then they can maybe – mentally go into a bit of a hole after having such a great great career for example is this something that you were thinking about how did you then set things up to then transition out of cricket
0: yeah I started to towards the end of my career I was sort of starting to think about um, you know possible scenarios Um, I didn't really have laser focus on one particular thing in the end I think the media again found me a little bit of it my the end of my career happened quicker than I thought it was going to because I got asked to retire. Um so I had
1: Ask, I ca- what do you mean? Ask well I got
0: well I w- they were gonna sack me unless I retired pretty much. So wow, it okay. looked it looked better if I retired. I still had two years left on a contract. Um so I was absolutely devastated. Like I I knew that I could have kept playing at a really good level. Um it sort of came at a time of um, my marriage breakdown and I didn't have a great year and then because I was a certain age, one of the selectors or the head selector thought it was, nah, well, he's just starting to, you know, naturally taper off and, and I was so angry and um, knew sort of – and at the time, we hadn't had a lot of success so, I, you know, they were trying to rebuild the squad so the senior players were going to be the first players to go so um, – I got offered some media work while I was playing over in England which I took up and was okay with it and then um, when I came back to Australia I was offered some work with with Fox Sports back here and um, so then once that sort of, once my cricket career ended I sort of started channeling that and then it sort of just grew from there really. So I didn't really Wasn't that keen on coaching. I'd sort of probably prefer to go into the media. I wasn't overly business orientated. I was in a pretty good spot financially. um, So I didn't really have to rush into anything. But um, in the end, yeah, got an opportunity in the media and loved it. And that's it's just continued down that track.
1: Yeah. Did you find that really tough um, after that period where you felt like you could have gone on, but then you were asked to, to leave the squad knowing that like a lot of it was maybe to do with just what was going on in your personal life. And it wasn't necessarily to do with that you were getting too old and then you couldn't just play how you used to play. Uh, and maybe the selectors or people around you not understanding it from that, from that point of view or not having that connection with you, um, to understand that, like. It's just something that's going on in your life, and that you still got a lot to give. Like, do you, were you having these sort of conversations, or was it basically all one way? Nah, we're not hearing it. This is the oh, decision.
0: Yeah, I was absolutely shattered, absolutely shattered. Um, because I sort of wanted to leave the game in a certain way, and I, one hundred percent knew that I was you know good enough to keep playing for another three years, probably at the time. So, um, yeah, I was having these conversations, but they were just not going on they'd made their mind up and I actually had a conversation with the, the head selector and he said doesn't matter how many runs you make you're not getting yourself back into the side so that was okay. so that was like right okay start to look ahead and um but I really made a conscious decision having seen other people um come out of the game as well really bitter <clears throat> that I didn't I didn't want to be one of those people so um I'm still reasonably bitter with the person that um, like I, I haven't got an enemy in the world but I'm pretty bitter with this person who made these decisions but um, in terms of these you know the organization you know I didn't want to be bitter with them because they I've had you know some of the best times of my life there.
1: Mm. You, talk, you talk a little bit about the financial um, position that you're in what is the financial world of cricket like uh, we know what it's like at the top of tennis we we're speaking about it at a lower level at tennis and how the money is really it's brutal you can't make a career out of it unless you're in the top 100 so um what is the financial setup of cricket can you make money and good money at a first class level um where where can you actually almost have like a full career from from playing
0: yeah it's, it's probably like a lot of other sports it's changed a lot in in probably the last 20, 30 years, um, I was actually really fortunate. So um, there was no players association around when I first started playing professional cricket. But when I, when I started playing test cricket, actually my second test match, um, we all voted because we were trying to form a players association and Cricket Australia were having nothing to do with it. So it got to the point where <clears throat> we voted that we were going to sit out the the last test match of the summer, which was my second test, um, if that was going to be the the case. Fortunately, um, they then said, yep, okay, well, we'll acknowledge your players association. And then from there, things just took off, like, you know, we're able to negotiate certain rates and so that our pays went up quite quite quickly. So that was at the start of my Australian career and they have just kept going up ever since. So um I think yeah it's not as certainly not as brutal as the individual sports there's um there's reasonable there, I mean the, the Australian international players especially you know countries like Australia um, England they make very good money um you can make a decent money if you're playing for South Australia and then other than that it obviously drops away pretty quickly so um I don't know how many there's there's probably about 25 20 to 25 on a list with South Australia. So, you know, the rookie contracts have come up a fair bit. So if you're that level, you can sort of start to to earn reasonable money. If you, you know, other than that, you, you, you're not making any money at all really. But the next step is to get into the Australian cricket team and you're earning, yeah, great money.
1: Yeah, yeah. It seems, yeah, like a obvious pathway there from state. But it's also good that at a state level that you can still make really good money playing
0: um The Sheffield Shield competition and all those competitions, right, against all the other states? Yeah, that's right. And when I first started, you you couldn't earn a living, you know, playing for South Australia, really. So now, uh, you know, there's big bash contracts and then Mm -hmm. there's your state contracts as well. So if you're an average state player, you're earning, you know, reasonable money. You might be, you know, earning maybe a couple hundred grand, maybe. So. Not too bad as a youngster. A- average, just an average state player is getting a couple hundred grand. I reckon, yeah. If they're playing, if you're playing big bash cricket as well, yeah. The 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 top big bash contracts now. are <coughs> – Excuse me, I got a bit of a um, thing in my throat. the I reckon, you're earning maybe a couple hundred thousand dollars for a good big bag big bash contract now. And then you've, if you're a, an average state player, you're probably. Another 150 on top of that, I reckon. That's pretty impressive.
1: Mm. I mean, Big Bash and, and 2020s changed the game. <coughs> Did
0: you need yeah. some more water, by the way. Yeah, sorry.
1: Yeah, hold up. We got we got a jug here.
0: Just got one of those. Yeah. You know those dry. <coughs> I had I had that in a podcast recently. It's. A yeah. oh, little Rory's got a cough as so well. We've both got the same thing. It's just sort of. Um, I was
1: just saying, I mean, the big passion 2020 has changed the game, that it's made it way more accessible for guys to actually earn a living and maybe even funnel and just focus on, on 2020. Like how, how has that completely changed the game?
0: Yeah, well, I think it's good in one way because um, there, there's a – There's a great rivalry with the AFL. So AFL and cricket, you know, around the talent, there's no doubt that a lot of, you know, a lot of kids grow up, especially males, grow up playing cricket and football. And then they sort of get to a stage, right, what am I going to choose? And I think probably most see the AFL as probably more of a a career path because you can earn, you know, there's, what, there's 40, 45 people on a list with each so I reckon each weekend there's almost a thousand AFL footballers playing. Whereas you compare that to cricket, it's a lot less. But having said that, I, I think because of the the money's the money's definitely gone up. Um there's more because of T twenty cricket, if you can if you're not good enough maybe to play either first class cricket or for Australia, then at least there's an, there's avenues around T twenty cricket where you can be a real role player for that team or franchise and then maybe still earn a, a reasonable living out of doing it that way. So I think there's definitely more more choice for, for cricketers. There's, there's, a, there's better ways that you can make a living out of cricket than there ever used to be. Mm. Yeah, I feel like the hype around it early was nuts. And now, I don't,
1: and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like it's maybe – not as big as what it was and now there's almost like this push back to test cricket to make test cricket great again is, is well, that what you're observing because i feel like test was test cricket was dying and i feel like there's almost a resurgence from what i've seen in some of the australian tests and then the ashes for example
0: yeah i mean it, it test cricket goes around in cycles i mean because <clears throat> the ashes has played every two years um the other great series is you know australia india that's the other big one as well so Um, it fluctuates this summer we've got Pakistan and the West Indies who aren't great draw cards so again you know people will be talking about oh yeah Test Cricket's on the way out but then next year India will be here and it'll just you know it'll sell out Um, same with the year after as the Ashes so it sort of goes around in cycles but I think um, yeah there's a real push I mean Test Cricket is the absolute ultimate and it's it's a bit like playing tennis over five sets. Generally the best player is going to win over five sets. Whereas same as test cricket, the, the generally the better team's going to, you're going to find out weaknesses over those five days out of the individual and, and out of the team. So um, T20 cricket, you can get away with a lot more because, because of the, the shorter nature of it. So all the weaknesses and that generally sometimes don't come, come to the fore. So um, yeah, I, it just depends on where, you know, guys like Chris Lynn, who very early said, no, nah, you know what, I don't want all the, the hassles of playing first-class cricket, and I know I can earn a decent living out of just playing T20 cricket. So now there's there's more choice, I think, for for the individual cricketer about what they want to achieve out of the game. So really up until probably five or six years ago, everyone's ultimate was to play test match cricket, but that's probably changed a little bit in recent times
1: as as a cricket purist and just being around the game and being in the culture for as long as you have where do you sit with it all and just people that you talked with talk with all the time in terms of the whole 2020 movement one day movement test um is it something that you really like is it something that you think is good for the game or is it not good for the game what what, what are your thoughts
0: uh I, i just think there's I love all formats of the game, but the amount of tournaments that are just popping up left, right, and centre is um, is a real worry. Like I think the ICC, which control the world game, has sort of lost um, control of fixturing. I mean, the fixturing is just out of control. I mean, it's, that's that's the number one problem in cricket at the moment, and so. Um, the international teams are getting diluted because of re- these T Twenty competitions that pop up. Like they're earning unbelievable amounts of money for six weeks' work. Like we're talking, you know, up to a million dollars for six weeks' work. So you know, teams like the West Indies, who are naturally, you know, T Twenty cricket's a little bit more like baseball. Like you, yeah, you know, yeah, that the power athletes um, are are a little bit better at it. Um, so. They're getting lost, you know, none of them want to play test match cricket because they can earn great money and set themselves up for life by, you know, doing other things. So that's the main problem in our game at the moment is is the amount of T20 tournaments that are that are popping up.
1: Yeah, you can see the separation of people just doing it for the money or getting lost in the, I'm making so much money doing X here, uh, so why would I worry about Y playing like test, test yeah. match cricket? Whereas like the people that love the game and love cricket – I think they would be probably tilting towards trying to make something out of test cricket and representing their country in that way.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and we try and um, educate the younger like, you know, all the kids growing up. Do you want to – that baggy green is so important yes. and, and play the ultimate form of the game, the hardest form of the game. That should be everyone's goal. Um, and then along the way, everyone's got to assess, you know, what, what they're good at are they going to play test cricket are they going to play first class cricket you know everyone's got their own decisions to make but i think we've got to really try and um you know push people to play as much test cricket as they can
1: is that the issue you're seeing with the younger generation they're just they're just completely wrapped up in the whole t20 buzz and that whole movement that's like no what's the point of test cricket too long can't be bothered but we're
0: hoping we're sort of hoping that i mean t20 cricket was formed because of um, attracting a, a younger, different sort of demographic to cricket. And then the idea was, okay, once you like T20 cricket, hopefully you're going to like 50 over cricket. And if you like 50 over cricket, hopefully you're going to like test cricket. So that was the the main aim of it. Um, and then, so some people are just going to come in, you know, some of the spectators might just like T20 cricket and they might not sort of like test match cricket. But um, I don't know, the the game might be, very different in 20 years time then you know there's talk around about there might be only four or five nations that are actually only playing test match cricket whereas other countries like the west indies and um even south africa countries like that might not be playing test match cricket because they can't afford it what do you mean can't afford it well they're just their their bodies can't afford because it's it's all comes from television rights and that if and if they're not attracting you know figures or television companies don't want to actually cover their games then they're not going to have any money pretty much Mm. because the crowds they're not making many um much money from the crowds coming through the gates it's all it's all meteorites interesting Mm.
1: yeah okay so it could be dying art and it's almost the well that's
0: what a lot of people are saying i mean the the ipl is just going through the roof so i don't know whether you've seen the figures on ipl but um, with the media rights, um, it's only second now per game is only second now to the NFL in America per game. Holy. Yeah. Baby. So it's gone past the EPL and it's only just under the NFL. Yes. So you meet so <laughs> I'm shocked. Yeah. So the media rights, uh I can't remember what the last ones were. Um, but yeah, per game. So they work it out per game. Yeah. And it's are second to the NFL.
1: That is nuts. Mm. As in, as in cricket. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, as in the Indian Premier League.
0: Yep. Yeah. So they're paying more more for their media rights than what they are per for the English Premier League. Wow. Per game.
1: Oh my God, that yeah okay. <laughs> they're getting more viewership than the. English and now Premier they're
0: saying, League. and now they're saying that the players are actually in the IPL are getting are underpaid because of these rights. So they're getting. So they're going to play the IPL for I think it goes for maybe eight weeks. And the best players are probably getting around about three million bucks or something like that. <laughs> and they're saying they're underpaid. That's hilarious. <laughs> what
1: more do you want? Yeah. These people are greedy. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, we Yeah. Okay, that's blown my mind. Um so being in the media, you've done a fair bit of commentary. Uh, what's it like being on the radio? So touched on it earlier on you know, on Triple M, um, Rush Hour with with Bernie and Jars. I've always wondered what goes on in a radio station. <laughs> what goes on in, in into a show? Like uh, how much planning is involved? Uh, how do you come up with these segments? Is it scripted? How much is it off the cuff? Um, yeah, give us an insight.
0: I don't think we're a typical show, so um, you might be coming to the wrong, wrong people to try and get some advice about how to put a, t- a, a radio show together. But um, no, we we put our radio show together, um, so it's sounding sounds like three blokes at a bar having a beer, talking sport and talking other stuff as um, well. Kind so of like
1: the front bar on Channel Seven, a little bit,
0: yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's more of a. When I first joined Triple M, I was thinking, oh, it was going to be like a sports show, but we're probably maybe 40% sport and 60% sort of variety. Um, but in terms of how do we put a show together, um, none of it's scripted. We just, we're just we fortunate there's three of us, so there's not many times where one of us is stuck for words, um, so we, we really go off the reaction of the other two. Um, we're best mates so that that helps as well i mean they they talk about especially in radio i mean and to a certain degree on tv it's all about the chemistry of who you're working for we've we've got that in in bucket loads we've got great chemistry so that's that's what hopefully shines through when you listen to the rush hour but in terms of structuring a show um we've got a whiteboard you know that sets out the you know when we have a song when we sort of read an ad um, so we we know how many segments we have to sort of fill um, we've got a we've got a WhatsApp group that we share ideas all the time so I'm sure you guys have got similar sort of groups that you chuck that's some exactly ideas what, that's exactly what yeah, we have, yeah. exactly so um, whenever we think of something or um, we're watching something or whatever we, we always put it straight down on the WhatsApp group or individually you put it in your phone um, so most most of the time by the time we, we sort of get into um work around about two, two thirty, we go live to where at four, um, <clears throat> we've got a pretty good idea of what's on the show, like who the interviews are gonna be. Um and then we might just have a couple of spots to fill and we just chuck it around and I'll go, yep, I've got something. But we never we never tell the others about what the, the segment's gonna be. We'd rather like a natural sort of reaction. Mm. So very very non-scripted we we like to be sort of more off the cuff
1: yeah i really like that i think that's why you guys are really successful and a lot of people like listening to you guys is because it comes through really natural it's easy to listen to it feels like i'm just hanging out with my mates yeah. it doesn't feel
0: too media personality like i think that's the great thing about and i absolutely love our station triple m is that the fact that no one takes themselves too seriously and we don't want to be we want to we don't want to put the perfect show together you know like and um we don't mind people going out on a limb and and trying to create something or making mistakes like we love mistakes and then you know we're able to sort of laugh about it and and carry on it that's half of our content is the all the all the bloopers (laughs) and people people love that yeah that's right it's just (laughs) completely natural so you know, we're not trying to get every word right and all that sort of stuff. So I think that just comes across and, and same as everyday conversations. Like, you know, you're going to stuff the odd word up here and there. We don't try and be, you know, absolutely perfect. So mm. hopefully that comes comes across.
1: Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, a great example in the podcasting space is obviously the father of all of, all of this is Joe Rogan and how it's just like he doesn't have this massive team. He's got him and Jamie and... Jamie's always there and putting the content together and um, Joe doesn't try to make it a big deal. He tries to keep a lid on it and um, it's just, he just enjoys talking to people and finding out new perspectives and learning from different people that he's never really tried to make it into this massive thing. And as a byproduct, just from keeping, just from starting it and going all this way that he has made it a massive thing without even trying. I think, I think there's parallels um, in a different way to you guys actually just enjoying it, not putting too much pressure and just uh, hanging out as yeah. mates.
0: It actually drives – we've got a young producer who does a great job, um, Tommy Bashley, but it drives him crazy. Like when we, we've we got a couple of segments that aren't filled on the board when the, the show starts, he's like, oh, what, come on, we got to – we're like, mate, don't worry about it. And, and sometimes <laughs> it, the, the red light will go on and then – one, you know, we've got to come up with something and someone will just say something and then away we go, yeah. you know. So it's just um, – and that's what we love about it. I honestly genuinely uh, feel very lucky that I go to work each day and I can't wait to get in that's, there because we amazing. just have such a great time.
1: How good is that? Yeah. I think there's something to take away from like, you talking about your young, young producer of people just – loosening up in that way to be like no no let me think of things on the fly here like back back me in and like we'll come up with it don't stress like yeah. we, we've got some experience here we know what we're doing and <laughs> i think people are too well and a lot of people need too much structure or too rigid that they feel like they need every single spot field and need to know exactly what they're going to say in every moment it's just
0: it's not reality but that's but some people are like that aren't they like some people are very um driven by um route well not routine but they they that's the way that they process things it needs to be in a structured form whereas I'm not really like that I've never really been structured so um yeah it, well, we we keep him we keep him on edge put it that yeah, way good
1: good <laughs> sounds like organized chaos <laughs> it is how do you go with just the real short uh format of radio in terms of like the what we're doing here long form able to really just like settle in dive into some something a lot deeper. Do you do you kind of wish you could do that on radio what what's what's it like um being really short form in that way?
0: Yeah, sometimes it can if I'm being completely honest, it can be a little bit um frustrating at times when you've got a great guest on and you sort of feel like you're just getting into it or you've opened up something that they really want to talk about and then you you're looking at the segment timer and you like our segments generally go for like five or six minutes. Yeah, so short. I know, so short. And um <laughs> what are you doing five or six minutes? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Try and cram as much in as you possibly can. But um often we'll we'll do it as a double break. So, you know, you turn it into a, like a 12 minute segment, but we've got to put a song in in between. Um, but yeah, I I I do like sort of delving in sometimes. It can get a little bit frustrating. Having said that, it does like the two hours we do the show, because it's so fast moving, it just flies. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you feel like you just started the show and then you finish. So, yeah. yeah.
1: Do you think there's a space in radio to almost blend and merge with like a podcast space where you might have a guest and you actually have some sort of long form conversation? Like you get some specific guest on to talk about something big or it doesn't happen all the time, but maybe you have like a, a 30 minute
0: 30-minute chat or do you think there's scope or do you guys have any power is any interest in going in that way at all probably not for our show um and the way that our station sort of set up definitely with other stations there's definitely that that scope there's no doubt about that um just depends on you know where each station's at and what they want to do with their shows um but i know for a fact that we get told off for, for going too long like if we have someone on for seven minutes instead of six minutes. we got the boss tapping us on our shoulder. Yeah, yeah. Come on, yeah, yeah, keep but things do, good. Do,
1: but do they look at the fact that like you guys might be lining it up and like it's it's going great and so many people are loving it because you're just digging a little bit into something, maybe a little bit extra, a few minutes here and there. Do they look at it from that angle or is it has to be so tight? Everything has to be so tight all the time. Well, as I said,
0: like you, we can turn it into a dub- double segment but no, no longer than that. So um, there's other – times where we can um we can interview someone outside of the show and then run it into the show into Mm -hmm. so you can sort of take the best bits if you know if you found some real gold or whatever you can maybe do it that way as well so you could interview someone for you know 20 minutes half an hour and then sort of you know break it up or edit that interview into Some of the segments maybe, Mm -hmm. yeah.
1: It's interesting. I get really fascinated by this and um, understanding the landscape of like what you do and what we do and then also like mainstream media, for example, because um, Dylan and I are obviously younger than you and we're looking at – and we've grown up also in a different generation and you can see the archaic nature of mainstream media starting to really die and you don't really know if there's an actual future there. I think radio is different because everyone's – driving in their car, everyone's still um, in a car all the time and it's just whether they've got their own music on on Bluetooth or just like their own um, podcast to listen to or they actually commit to the radio. So do you feel that there is going to be a bit of a shift in mainstream media? Um, how do mainstream media and maybe radio innovate to keep up with the times, because I find myself—I don't watch TV; I just watch YouTube. I've got YouTube subscri- subscription, excuse me, and I have my Netflix, and I like watching specific people. And I'm just not sure how these mainstream media and radio companies keep up. Do you, what are your thoughts? Yeah,
0: radio's shifted massively in the last three or four years. Um, a lot of people, I mean that. They do co- collect a lot of data and, and work out how a lot of listeners are going about consuming the product. So um, a lot of people still are, are actually listening to our radio show but in podcast form. So they might, um, even with I think the breakfast shows, like so they might be driving to, to work in the morning. But they're listening. They might be a day behind. They might be listening to the previous day, so they can, you know, fast forward the ads or fast forward the songs or whatever. So, okay. yeah, I've been thinking about um, like that. Yeah, so um, with our show, you can, yeah, you, the podcast is available. I think half an hour after our show finishes. So I, I think a lot of people listen to it like that as well. So they're not necessarily listening to it live in the car on the way home or whatever. They they might be. Um, they might be listening to it in the gym the next morning. So oh, okay. a lot of people are yeah, podcasting it that way.
1: Yeah, I didn't I didn't think about it like that from actually from a streaming point of view, mm. like through the website. No or?
0: streaming's huge, yeah. So we've yeah. got with our company, we've got um it's a listener app. Yep. And you can access all of our so that's Southern Cross Oz So yep. all the I don't know how many shows are on there, but um there's Thousands of podcasts. There's all the radio shows from around the country. They're all on this listener app. So it's a it's a huge platform. Yeah,
1: mm-hmm. and then you can bypass ads.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yep. So you just yeah you just fast forward. Um, I often do that if I want to if I get home and I go did Jars actually say that and I get <laughs> get on the podcast and fast forward it to the segment that I oh, yeah. and and listen to it that way. So you can you know fast forward rewind do whatever you want it's just like a yeah it's a pretty cool product
1: have you had any massive blunders or any like just crack up crack up moments that you can recall on the show
0: oh heaps there's there's too many there's too many to to go back on but probably my worst is in commentary tv commentary i was actually doing the ipl um the indian premier league and a lot of the a lot of the teams are uh, either um, owned or they've got these Bolly- huge Bollywood stars involved in in their teams. And there were two Bollywood stars that are huge in India called Shilpa Shetty and Priti Zinta. Yep. Beautiful women. You know, they're on all the movies over there and they're huge. Um, anyway, um, I was commentating and I was sort of mid-sentence about saying something and then one of the Bollywood stars came up on the screen, and I've got I've got the producer in my ear saying, "Name her, name her," and I'm like, <laughs> and I'm going, and I've started to get a bit confused. I'm going, is that Pretty Zinta or is that Shilpa Shetty? And I'm like, oh, oh. and then, and then he's going, "Name her, name her," and I said, "Oh, look at her! There she is, enjoying the cricket. The beautiful, pretty Shitty." <laughs> Oh, so it wasn't pretty Zinta or Shilpa Pachetti. I called her pretty shitty. And and I was like, you know, it was one of those moments where shit, did I just say that? And then um and then I had people coming up to me afterwards going, you know, in three days time going, Oh blew it, those shoes are pretty shitty, mate. <laughs> so yeah. I haven't worked on the IPL since, so I don't know whether that's a coincidence or not.
1: Checks out. <laughs> Oh, that's fantastic. All you can do is laugh. That's, oh, no, that's, that's a great right. story. So like,
0: oh.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh. And do you see yourself working radio long term, loving it, no real end point? Um,
0: hopefully not. Like, I'm only, I'm about probably about three or four years into my career with Triple M. So I'm, I'm sort of, I know I'm nearly 52, but in terms of like working for triple m i've worked sort of a little bit on and off done bits and pieces for them in the past but um only about three years full time with triple m so yeah hopefully not we we a fairly young show as well like bernie myself and jars have only been together for a couple of years now so um and we've you know it's been a somehow it's been a big success so um hopefully we can it's, it's whether we can sort of keep everyone together i suppose um Radio's a funny sort of industry where you know people get um you know taken to different shows or you know the same company but you know someone might have to go and do breakfast for a few years or whatever so it's about I mean we're hoping that we can really keep the show together for for a long period of time I don't know how long Jars wants to keep doing it he's done radio for over twenty years, so whether he wants to keep doing it, I'm not too sure I know he wants to go around for at least for another two or three years yeah um I'm lucky as well. I do I work for Channel Seven during the summer. Um, commentate the cricket with them. We've got the rights for another seven years. Mm-hmm. So that if I don't stuff it up or call anyone pretty shitty, um <laughs> that'll get me through to nearly sixty. So, um my boy, I think I've got to work to about I'm um, about seventy, I reckon, to get the boys through school. So, um I don't know, I've got to find ways of making a living.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I mean it's an enjoyable way to pass your time. Just hanging yeah. out with your mates, shooting the shit. Um yeah. Yeah like you like you said you just love going to work every yeah. day and that's that's such a good spot so if if it's if that's the case then yeah. why have any end point just keep in doing what you're doing and enjoying it and just try to tweak things and make things a little bit better and see how you can improve things but that's just right. enjoy that process Yeah
0: that's right I mean I as I said I I'm very lucky I'm I'm really busy for you know 2 or 3 months during the summer where I'm you know the show breaks for six weeks with the with the rush hour, but I'm you know straight into the cricket commentary with both Triple M and and Channel Seven, so I'm flat out for like two or three months. But <clears throat> excuse me, but for the rest of the year, you know, it gives me a great chance to sort of refresh and and get ready for the summer again. You know, I've got the um, when I said I'm trying to be less selfish. You know, I'm around my boys a lot more than I was with my older daughter, so I'm really enjoying that you know taking my boys to school and doing all the stuff with them on the weekends is great so at the moment i've got a great sort of you know work life balance
1: amazing you said like a number of times on this on this uh it will in this conversation that like fortunate very lucky um things gone my way i think there's an element in luck in life but what why do you think so many good things have just come your way quite easily naturally Do you put that down to something more than just being fortunate and being lucky?
0: Uh, Yeah, I don't know whether that's, I don't know, other people might be able to answer that question better than I can, but I just distinctly remember my mum, my late mother, um, always saying to me, doesn't matter what you do, Greg, you always land on your feet somehow, you know? So um, I've never really been one to be, and it drives my wife crazy, you know, She, she doesn't think I'm ambitious enough, but... You know, I certainly look forward uh, and sort of think about where my life's going to be in five years' time, but I don't sort of get much further than that. Um, it's, yeah, more about sort of taking the opportunities at the time and and doing things that I like doing. Um, and I've, you know, loved my cricket career and I've loved my media career, so I haven't really had to sort of alter the course of my life other than that too much. So that's why I think I'm quite lucky is that I've been able to do things that I'm that I'm good at and I and I really like.
1: Is it just saying yes to the opportunities that present themselves that you enjoy rather than getting scared? Have you been? Oh someone yeah, that, I've
0: said no to a lot of things. Do, do you know? think
1: it's because you've said yes to the right things and said no to the wrong things and holding true to that that yeah. you, you've maybe had a better pathway that that's and you, that you've been able to enjoy more success and just had a good time?
0: Yeah, I, I've been. Um, I think there's definitely a place in life where you've got to take yourself outside of your comfort zone and I've done that a lot throughout my, my life so don't get me wrong but I've also been, um, you're right, said yes to things that I know that I'm going to enjoy doing and other things that I've been asked to do where I think, oh, you know what, that's not really my thing or it's not a great fit for me at this time in my life and yeah, that's maybe where why I'm – where I'm at at the moment, enjoying what I'm doing and and doing something that I really like doing.
1: Yeah, I think you underestimate how many people struggle with that. I think people get so wrapped up in just uh, saying yes to the wrong things because of maybe looking at it too much from a financial element Mm -hmm. and obviously like finances are so important and you need to set yourself up um, but I think people get paralyzed and make poor decisions because of that. And yeah. it's no real easy answer and that's a challenging one.
0: I know. And, and there's all, as you know, there'd be you know, completely different individual situations along the way where you, know, you might have to take a job for a certain period of time or there might be a, a certain situation where you can be courageous enough to say, you know what, it is good money but something I might not like doing, uh, taking less money. And then growing that into something that you love doing and earning more who knows like yeah. everyone's in in different situations but yeah, um that's a that's everyone's own sort of yeah, I mean,
1: so path and so easy to get sucked in yeah once you maybe do making once you are making good money doing something that maybe Correct. isn't right yeah. and then you're like oh i just can't turn yeah. down the money even yeah. though i know this is not the right thing for me but and then you're 20 years later Miserable with all this money, <laughs> and it's like, uh is this maybe the right path? I'm not yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, to kind of move this conversation towards an end, I want to, I want to touch on uh, being a dad for you. Um, just some of the lessons you've learned from cricket. What have you What have you really learned? Um, along your journey of cricket, other things, everything you've done in your life and and what sort of things and values do you want to instill in your boys or try to instill in your boys um, yep. to help them on their journey? And um, also your daughter as yep, well, who's a yep. little bit older.
0: Uh, well, the main thing for me is manners. Um, that's the most important thing for me and my kids. And one of the great joys in my life at the moment is my daughter who's 22 years of age. Um, but I've been getting it for a a fair period of time now the feedback is um oh she's such a great young lady she's so well mannered she holds a great conversation you know i just that's i just you know gush when i hear that sort of thing so um same with my boys um you know i'm done sort of now getting to the situation where the you know the the manners are coming a bit more naturally which is what you want um but Again, I just want them to be, you know, one, obviously, health is the main thing. So if they're, uh, you know, lucky enough to be healthy, you know, touch wood, all three kids have been so far, um, well mannered. And then just to be able to find something that they're good at. And whether that's sport or work, um, charity, whatever it is, um, I'm, I'm big on that. Um, you know, just because I played sport, or just because I played cricket, not necessarily that's the reason why I want my kids to to do that. I want them to find their own thing that they're you know equally good at or better at. Um, whether that's you know cricket, sport, work-wise, um, that's the main thing for me. I just it's a bit of a cliche sort of thing, but I just want my kids to be happy and, yeah. and good people. Yeah, respect.
1: How do you manage the whole new landscape that they're in compared to how you grew up? I mean, you didn't grow up with technology, you didn't grow up with, with phone, social media. So how do you navigate this new landscape? Because I feel like a lot of parents just don't know how to navigate and where to kind of lay boundaries on certain things with technology and social media. So how do you navigate that with
0: um, the boys, especially at their age? Got any advice? Because we're struggling with that at the moment. To be honest, I mean, when you mention YouTube, our eight-year-old Sam is just—he's just on YouTube constantly. Yeah. So um, the the other one, Rory, who's seven, he's he's a lot better, but he does follow his brother a little bit. I think the young one's a little bit more like me. Like he'd be, he'd be prefer to kick the footy around or be on his bike, or whereas Sam's um, a bit more, yeah, stuck on the laptop or searching things on you know it's just everywhere isn't it i mean the smart tvs i go watch tv and you go in there and he's on youtube or um we've been we've tried to be as old-fashioned as we can be so the boys haven't got um ipads recently they got a nintendo um but they're only allowed 20 minutes a day on that so we're just trying to limit their their screen time as much as possible but it's it's hard, mate. Yeah, we, we, we fight it every day. Yeah. We do. So I think
1: you've got to hold firm and be prepared to fight with them on that and yep. just stick to your guns. Um, I mean, obviously, I don't have any experience there, but uh, just doing that and then creating – because I've spoken to other people and they've just said like once they're outside and they're doing other things and not on that, they're having the best time ever. But getting them mm. outside to do some of these things is the hardest thing yep. ever and the battle and the arguments they have around it is uh yeah is full on but then they appreciate the fact that once they are outside they're having a good time it's just laying those foundations well
0: fortunate yeah fortunately we're not in that situation yet like generally um as i said sam's the one who's probably more into that sort of stuff um but if i say to him sam come on mate let's go outside or ride your bike he'll he'll pretty much get up straight away and come out so we're not we haven't had, had too many fights about that sort of stuff yet so that might be coming who knows (laughs) <laughs> yeah,
1: keep us updated <laughs> we have to do our bit with the boys at yeah. to
0: make sure that they're uh, getting outside and uh
1: on technology because yeah. we talk about it all the time yeah. just like kids in the, in the holidays when we don't see them like get out here use the courts get out and play hang out with your friends like get yeah. off get off the phone and the ipad and, yeah. and get out and do stuff
0: now we're big like that and um yeah we've made it we've tried to make a conscious effort to be um as much like that as possible um mm-hmm. but it's not easy when they come home from school and, you know, all their mates have got this and, you know, they're always, there's always little challenges along the way, but we're trying. That's all I can say. <laughs> That's all you can do really. <laughs> last,
1: last question here. Do you have any advice for anyone listening trying to become a pro in whatever sport or whatever discipline that they're doing from, from your journey? Is there any kind of key things that you – Look back on or would give advice to to help anyone on that journey for themselves
0: yeah i reckon um if you're gonna have a crack have a proper crack at it like you know do your research um have it's great to have role models as well you know like i i grew up you know greg chapel lily those sort of guys so um So it's not necessarily a model your game around, but sort of it's always good to have heroes. And then, as I said, if you're going to have a real go at it, have a go at it, but don't – I don't think get so deep into it where it's like just proving to be um, an unwinnable battle. I think there's still – you've still got to have something – you've got to have a life balance there, Um, whether that's a second sport, um, whether it's study – um, whether it's working with it. I don't know. There, there's got to be something else, you know. Like there, There's a difference between like going all in and having a crack, which which is what I'm saying, but you've also got to have times where you can not be so consumed by it that you've got to have something outside that's not normal but takes you away from what you're trying to achieve. Yeah. Um, I think if you do, have that, does that make sense Yeah, it or makes not?
1: perfect sense because then you can actually direct your energy more clearly what yeah. you are – committing and having a full crack, like you said, um, and it doesn't consume you because then you completely define yourself on the performance exactly. of how you're doing in that sport because you com- you, you're you basically saying to yourself, well, I gave everything up for this and it's not working. Yeah. And then there's so much pressure involved. So yeah, I think that's, that's really good mm-hmm. advice. Thanks so much. No it's worries. been absolute pleasure. Uh, we've been keen to do this for a little while and um, appreciate you taking time because we know you're a busy man. So um, absolutely love today. And thanks again, Great. Greg.
0: No worries. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me.